Section 46 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 45 The Early Tudors by James Gardiner, Part 1 that which gave the death blow to feudalism in England was undoubtedly the Battle of Bosworth. The Normans, after their invasion and conquest, had drilled and disciplined the English people with so thorough a comprehension of the capabilities of the Saxon population and so full an appreciation of their solid merits that the sense of subjugation was soon effaced and a harmonious system established which time could not entirely destroy. The courtesy of the upper classes and the respectful subordination of the lower alike contributed to the strength of an English nationality, which, as it became more and more entirely insular, became more and more unique, so that even the decay and demoralization which followed the loss of continental possessions in the 15th century were accompanied by a compensation which was very real though but little appreciated at the time. With the loss of France, England was released from a burden which she was quite unable to bear, and when a century later she lost Calais also, she was all the more able to negotiate effectively with Scotland, and lay firm the foundations of the United Kingdom, which a future age was to build up. The expulsion of the English from both Normandy and Gascony in the days of Henry the Sixth had led naturally to mutual recriminations among the nobility and gentry, who looked upon France as a playground to which they had an obvious right. These feelings mixed themselves with the great dynastic struggle of the Wars of the Roses, and the House of York owed not a little of its popularity to the fact that their party was not responsible for disaster abroad. But when Edward IV taxed his subjects severely for a new invasion of France, which was to revive the glories of the Black Prince and of Henry V, and when instead of prosecuting his claims in the field, he listened to a seductive offer of an annual tribute from Louis XI, and returned home for a bloodless campaign, it was already clear to discerning minds that the reconquest of France was a dream and an impossibility. Edward, indeed, though an excellent soldier, when events compelled him to act, was constitutionally indolent, nor did he win the hearts of his people by pocketing what seemed very like a bribe from an enemy, after impoverizing his own subjects for the purpose of making war. But he was anxious to bequeath to his children a quiet succession, untroubled by serious difficulties either abroad or at home. Unhappily, he was no politician and failed to foresee the clouds which darkened the horizon in both quarters just before his death. England might have done very well without France, and even the quarrels of the nobility might have been left to settle themselves, had they not shaken the throne itself. But the security of the throne depended on the support of great families with large landed possessions, who had put large forces of their retainers into the field at need, Warwick, the kingmaker, had been the great ally of Edward IV and of his father, and it was to him more than any other man in England that Edward owed his kingdom. It was by Warwick also that he was afterwards driven out of it, 
and that Henry VI was reinstated there for a time. Edward's own brother Clarence was won over by Warwick to assist in driving him out, and though afterwards he changed sides again, and helped in his brother's restoration, mutual distrust still remained, and Clarence was ultimately put to death as a traitor. Strange to say, Edward seems to have retained his confidence in his younger brother Richard, who after his death proved a worse traitor still, for he supplanted Edward's two sons, and then murdered them after getting himself proclaimed king as Richard III. But a conspiracy was formed between confederates both in England and in Brittany, where Henry, Earl of Richmond, lived in exile, by which it was arranged that he should invade the kingdom, and after winning the crown by the defeat of Richard in battle, should marry Elizabeth, eldest daughter of Edward IV, thereby uniting the claims of the House of York to those of the House of Lancaster. 1. Henry VII, 1485 to 1509. It was thus that the Earl of Richmond, after the victory of Bosworth, became King Henry VII. He indeed claimed the throne in his own right by a Lancastrian title, but as that title seemed open to some objections, he could not have hoped to win it apart from the pledge he had given to marry the heiress of York. Still less could he have retained it without actually marrying her. During nearly the whole of his reign he was troubled with Yorkist conspiracies, and it was with great wisdom that in his second parliament he procured the institution of the court of the Star Chamber, a court of evil repute in later times, but of great value in that day for the correction of irregularities in the administration of justice, caused by the excessive power of local magnates, partial sheriffs and corrupt juries. The name of this court was derived from the chamber in which the Privy Council had been accustomed to sit at Westminster, and the act only delegated to a committee of that council powers which had been always exercised when fought fit by the council as a whole. An act was also passed to make murderers always amenable to prosecution by the Crown, without waiting, as had been usual, a year and a day, during which the next of kin might prosecute. The responsibility of coroners and townships was also increased in all cases of slaughter. The king, moreover, with the Pope's assent, imposed some restrictions on the privileges of sanctuaries, especially in cases of treason, and on those of the clergy when convicted of crime. But faction at home was unhappily reinforced by movements outside the country, for foreign princes joined continually in the game, and Ireland afforded, especially at the commencement of Henry's reign, a basis of operations against England, of which these princes were not slow to take advantage, for Ireland had been a stronghold of the Yorkist party, where in past times Richard, Duke of York, prescribed in England, had ruled as the king's lieutenant in defiance of the very authority he professed to represent. It was not a country which a Lancastrian king could hope to reduce very speedily to obedience. Yet we shall see that, notwithstanding the most unpromising commencement, Henry's success in this matter was far beyond expectation. The first rumour of disturbances after his ascension arose out of the escape of Viscount Lovell and of the two brothers Stafford from Sanctuary at Colchester in the spring of 1486. The leaders, however, still lay hid, and it was not until the beginning of 1487 that some far-reaching plots developed themselves. Lovell fled to Flanders, a hotbed of conspiracy against Henry, 
and a boy named Lambert Simmel was set up in Ireland, first as the son of Edward IV. The murder of the two young princes in the tower being held doubtful by some, afterwards as the Earl of Warwick, son of the ill-fated Duke of Clarence, whom Henry, just after his accession, had lodged in the tower to prevent any rising in his favour. Then John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, who had attended a meeting of the Privy Council at Sheen on February 2nd, escaped to Flanders also. He was probably the originator of the whole conspiracy, for he was the eldest son of the Duke of Suffolk, by Elizabeth, sister of Edward IV, and had been nominated by Richard III as his successor on the throne. His hopes had thus been blighted by Henry's accession, and having prepared a fleet, he now took counsel in Flanders of his aunt, Margaret, Duchess Dowager of Burgundy, another sister of Edward IV, how to dispossess Henry of the kingdom. He then went to Simul in Ireland, whose pretensions he recognised, though he had the best reason to know their falsehood, as a means of clearing the ground for himself. Simul was crowned in Christchurch Cathedral, Dublin, in the presence of the Earl of Kildare, then deputy of Ireland, and of his brother, the Lord Chancellor, and of nearly all the judges, nobility, and bishops of the land. Supported by Lincoln, Kildare, and a body of German mercenaries under one Martin Seward, the pretender invaded England. But he was defeated at Stoke-upon-Trent, June 16, 1487. His leaders, including Lincoln and Lord Thomas Fitzgerald, were slain, and he was himself taken prisoner. So ended the first great crisis in Henry's reign, and he was stronger now than he had been, not only by the death of Lincoln, the overthrow of the conspiracy, but because his Queen Elizabeth in the year preceding had borne him a son, to whom in respect of his old British descent he gave the name of the fabled King Arthur. As a further counterpoise to faction, he now caused the Queen to be crowned, November 25th. But at this very time he had also to appeal urgently to Parliament. It was his second Parliament, for aid in the shape of taxation for the defence of the realm. The continual danger of invasion made it an object of supreme importance to him to study carefully the aims and policy of foreign princes, for his own security upon the throne depended quite as much on what was done abroad as on anything that he could do at home. The Spanish sovereigns, Ferdinand and Isabel, were anxious to draw him into a war with France, and the marriage of Prince Arthur to their daughter, Catherine of Aragon, was already arranged in 1488. Henry was unwilling to make war upon a country whose government had really assisted him to obtain the crown, but he had been scarcely less indebted as an exile to the Duke of Brittany, and France was menacing the independence of that duchy. Henry endeavoured to mediate, while a band of volunteers under Lord Woodville crossed the channel unauthorised, shared the disastrous defeat of the Bretons in the Battle of St. Aubin, July 28, 1488. Henry strongly disowned responsibility for this expedition, but ill feeling had been already aroused both in France and England, and on April 1st, 1489, he fully committed himself to the defence of the duchy by a treaty with the Duchess Anne.
Moreover, a state of war between England and France had existed when he came to the throne, and he had only suspended it by a truce, which he from time to time renewed, till circumstances were at last too strong for him. The treaty for the marriage between Arthur and Catherine was fettered with conditions which really obliged England to make actual war upon France for the benefit of Spain. This was the understanding from the first, and it was distinctly expressed in the treaty which Henry's ambassadors negotiated at Medina del Campo in March 1489. Henry was making preparations, though he was anxious to put off the event to the last. In February, Parliament granted him a very special subsidy of one-tenth of the annual value of lands, and one-eightieth part of the whole value of man's goods. The levying of this impost created disturbances in Yorkshire, in attempting to suppress which the Earl of Northumberland was slain. But resistance was at length put down. Henry did his best for some time to assist Brittany without engaging otherwise in hostility with France, but his efforts were all thrown away. In December 1491, the Duchess Anne married Charles VIII, and the first step was taken towards a union of Brittany with France. Next year, in fulfilment of obligations alike to Spain and to Maximilian, King of the Romans, Henry crossed the Channel and besieged Boulogne, October. The season was late and he was quite unsupported by his allies, but he fulfilled his treaty obligations to them. And moreover, finding Charles VIII quite willing to pay him an annual tribute of 50,000 francs, he followed the example of Edward IV and made a peace very profitable to himself. The Treaty of Etaples, November 3rd, 1492. After having taxed his subjects highly and drawn benevolences from them for an energetic war. However unpopular this result might be in England, it certainly strengthened Henry's hands in dealing with foreign powers. He was no longer under special obligations to Spain, and France had consented to buy his friendship. The prince, who was most dissatisfied with the result, was Maximilian, King of the Romans, to whom Henry had already rendered very important aid, and who seemed to consider him bound to fight his battles in France, though he had himself been by no means a steady and faithful ally. Maximilian's animosity from this time was persistent, yet it was perhaps not more injurious to Henry in particular than it was inconvenient to other powers when in 1495 Spain, Venice and the Pope would have been glad to draw England into a league with Maximilian against France. Maximilian's infant son Philip, called Archduke of Austria, was to govern the Netherlands when he came of age. But the council, which meanwhile governed in his name, had very little respect for his father, who in fact was at one time not allowed the guardianship of his own son. Much more influential was Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, widow of the young prince's grandfather, Charles the Bold, who, being a sister of Edward the Thorpe, and having sustained considerable loss of revenue by the accession of Henry the Seventh, laboured ardiciously for his overthrow. She harboured at her court disaffected Yorkists who fled from England and assisted their conspiracies against the new king. Her nephew, John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, who supported Simmel and was killed at the Battle of Stoke, 1487, had first escaped over sea, 
and held conference with her. And notwithstanding the disastrous failure of that rebellion, the refugees at her court had ample facilities for the formation of fresh conspiracies. It is questionable, however, whether the new impostor who now appeared on the scene received his original stimulus from her. Perkin Warbeck, a native of Torony, was a young man who had been much in the Low Countries and in Portugal, and having finally taken service with a Breton named Pregnant Maino, landed in Cork in 1491, arrayed in fine clothing belonging to his master. The Irish took him for a prince of royal birth, if not Warwick the son of Clarence, he must be a bastard son of Richard III. But after he had denied both characters, they persuaded him to personate Richard Duke of York, the younger of the two princes murdered in the tower, telling him he would be supported by the earls of Kildare and Desmond, who were both, in spite of recent professions of loyalty, wholly bent on the king's destruction. He remained some little time in Ireland, learning to speak English fluently, and to play the part assigned to him, when Charles VIII, knowing that Henry was preparing to make war on France, invited him to his court. There, for a brief time, he was honoured as a prince, but on the conclusion of the priests of Etaples, 1492, he was dismissed and went to Flanders, where Margaret received him with open arms, acknowledging him as her nephew. Next year, when Maximilian visited the Low Countries, Henry sent an embassy to him and to the Archduke Philip to remonstrate against the countenance given to the pretender, but it produced no result. The counsel of the young Archduke replying that Margaret was free to do as she pleased within the lands of her jointure. Thus it was clear that the government of the Low Countries intended to allow conspiracies to be matured in those parts against Henry the Seventh. He met this by forbidding commerce with Flanders and removing the mart of the merchant adventurers from Antwerp to Calais, September 18, 1493. This was a step quite against his ordinary policy, for no king was ever more studious of the interests of commerce, and though aimed at the Flemings, it produced inconveniences on both sides, thus leading to a riot in London as the German merchants of the Hansa had certain privileges by charter, which enabled them to carry on the traffic forbidden to Englishmen. Perkin, however, soon afterwards, repaired to Maximilian at Vienna, where at the funeral of the Emperor Frederick III, a place was assigned to him corresponding to his pretensions. Next year he returned with Maximilian to Flanders, where he was recognised as King of England but Henry had intelligence of those implicated in the conspiracy at home. A number of arrests were made, the most startling of which was that of Sir William Stanley. To him King Henry had owed not only his crown but his life, when it was in serious danger at Bosworth, in reward for which, among other things, Stanley had been appointed the King's Chamberlain. Yet he had sent over to Flanders to encourage Perkin once and Robert Clifford, who, turning informer, revealed his intrigues to the king. Stanley was beheaded on Tower Hill, February 16, 1495. This disconcerted for a time a plan for the invasion of England, which had been formed in the Low Countries, was nearly ripe for execution. On July 3rd, however, 
Warbeck appeared with a little fleet off Deal, and some of his followers landed, but were presently taken, sent up to London and hanged. Perking himself had wisely refrained from landing and sailed to Ireland, where he attacked by sea the loyal town of Waterford, which Desmond's followers at the time besieged by land. After eleven days, however, he was compelled to withdraw with loss, and later in the year he found a better asylum in Scotland, which had long been prepared to receive him. Influenced, no doubt, by Maximilian and by Margaret of Burgundy, James the Fourth of Scotland had committed himself to Perkin's cause before he came, and now not only acknowledged him as Duke of York, but gave him in marriage his cousin Catherine Gordon, daughter of the Earl of Huntley. In September 1496, when the young man had been nearly a year his guest in Scotland, James invaded England with Perkin in his company, but it was a mere brief border raid from which the Scots returned in three days on hearing of a force sent from Newcastle to oppose them, and all that came of it was that the truce was broken, that Henry now made preparations to punish a neighbour whom he had been anxious to conciliate. He assembled a great council, which, anticipating the action of Parliament, promised him £120,000 for the war, and authorised the raising of £40,000 in loans. Parliament met in January 1497. Two-fifteenths and tenths were imposed, to be levied in May and November following. But the first attempt to collect the money in Cornwall met with serious opposition. A lawyer named Thomas Flammock told the people that they were not bound to pay, as the king had a right to the services of his feudal tenants for military purposes, without burdening his subjects generally. Flammock and a blacksmith, named Michael Joseph, became the leaders of an army of malcontents which marched on towards London. They were joined at Wells by Lord Orderly, but were refused admittance into Bristol. At last they encamped upon Blackheath, and actually overlooked London. But here at length they were defeated with great slaughter, June 17th, and the survivors delivered themselves up as prisoners. This result was not obtained without the aid of a force under Lord Daubeny, which had been raised to proceed against Scotland, but was hastily recalled to meet the Cornishmen. Henry's troubles made him the more anxious to come to terms with James, if he could only be got to deliver up Perkin, or even to cease to countenance him. But just at the time when he dispatched Bishop Fox to Scotland to make these demands, July 1497, James was sending off Warbeck by sea, from air, with view to his landing among the disaffected population in Cornwall, and getting them to aid his pretensions. Before sailing, however, Warbeck received a message from a turbulent Irish chieftain named Sir James Ormond, which induced him to take Ireland on his way. This was a mistake, for both Kildare and Desmond were now reconciled to the king, but he landed at Cork and was received warmly by an old friend, John Walter, or John O'Water as he is called by the chroniclers who had lately been mayor. Sir James Ormond had by this time been killed in a private encounter, and Perkin wasted precious time while the loyal citizens of Waterford not only dispatched across the Channel news of his arrival and design of invading Cornwall, but did their best first to seize him 
and afterwards when he sailed in September to intercept him on his passage. He not only escaped capture, however, but landed at White Sand Bay near the land's end on September 7th, and speedily drew after him a very considerable following. On September 17th he appeared before Exeter, and for two days attempted to storm the town. Failing here, he went on towards Taunton, where hearing that an army under Daubeny was advancing to meet him, he stole away in the night, and riding hard across country one or two companions, took refuge in Beaulieu's sanctuary in Hampshire. The sanctuary being soon afterwards surrounded, he surrendered on promise of the king's pardon, and was brought back to Taunton where the king had now arrived. He was compelled to confess his imposture before his wife, who had accompanied him to Cornwall, and who was sent for from St. Michael's Mount, where he had left her. The king, pitying her misfortunes, sent her with an escort to the queen, while he himself followed slowly to Westminster, where he arrived in the latter part of November. With him came Perkin, whose career was now virtually finished, and the king seems at this time to have had no other fault than to expose him to public derision as a rebuke to factitiousness. Misled by the Duchess Margaret, it is quite probable that Maximilian and some other foreign princes are bleeding Perkin. But it is clear that most of them valued him merely as a pawn by which to gain their own ends with Henry the Seventh, and this was really his whole significance. In England, he had never the courage to play his part effectively. At Deal, he refused to land. In Northumberland, he only pitied the ravages committed by his Scottish allies. In Devonshire, he stole away from his own followers in search of an asylum, and now the Londoners flocked to see him as he were a monster, while he was made to repeat his confession in public, and conveyed on horseback through the streets, one day to the Tower and another day to Westminster. His life was spared for two years longer. His dismissal from Scotland, though certainly not a concession to English demands, is commonly considered to have cleared the way for a peace between the kingdoms. Oh, no doubt it did so, but not at once. Owing to the Cornish rebellion, James had for a time escaped retribution for his infraction of the truce in the preceding year, and just after sending Warbeck away, he proceeded to besiege Norham Castle on the Tweed. The Earl of Surrey, however, whom Henry had some years before appointed lieutenant of the north, hastened to its relief, and James was obliged to retire. Surrey then advanced into the borders, destroyed some fortresses and took the castle of Ayton, where, September 30th, 1497, by the mediation of the Spanish ambassador, Pedro de Alela, Another seven years' truce was arranged between the two countries, with a stipulation to which both kings afterwards agreed. The matters in a dispute between them should be referred to Spanish arbitration. Spain had a very deep interest in promoting friendly relations between England and Scotland, in order that the former country might still be a check upon France, and Ayla was a most efficient instrument in the reconciliation. Next day, an unfortunate incident on the borders threatened for a moment to disturb the new settlement. Some Scotchmen visiting Norham Castle in armour created suspicion. Haughty words led to blows and the Scots fled. The English, too, killed a number of Scots apparently in some raid which followed, 
but both sovereigns were so anxious to preserve the peace, the matter was satisfactorily arranged by Bishop Fox, who was sent to James at Melrose, and who there apparently concluded with him a long-talked-of project for his marriage with Henry's daughter Margaret. Henry had now seemingly surmounted his most serious difficulties, but there were still troubles in store for him. Before relating these, however, something must be said of his remarkable success in the pacification of Ireland. How, it will be asked, had that country, after supporting Lambert Simmel with such strange enthusiasm and unanimity in 1487, became so loyal ten years later that hardly the slightest Irish encouragement was then afforded to Perkin Warbeck? This result was certainly due to a patience and sagacity on the king's part characteristic of that politic governance for which he bore so high a name among princes. Even after the victory of Stoke, he could not afford to punish Simmel's adherents in Ireland, who were virtually the whole Irish people. In 1488, the year after Simmel's coronation, he sent Sir Richard Edgecombe to Ireland to receive the submissions of Kildare and the other Irish lords and administer oaths of allegiance it required great adroitness in the envoy to succeed in such a mission. They took the oath, however, and Kildare was continued as Lord Deputy. But now Yorkist plots were brewing in England, and in order to be safe as regards Ireland, Henry desired to win Kildare over to a personal interview with him. He sent him a private message promising great favours if he would come, with renewal of the dignity of Lord Deputy for ten years. He also wrote to him on July 28, 1490, expressly desiring his presence within ten months. But all this was nothing to Kildare. He allowed the time granted him to expire, and then not only wrote himself, but induced a number of the Irish lords to write in his excuse to the king, that his continued presence in Ireland at that time was absolutely indispensable. The king, however, they declared, might rest assured of the earl's complete loyalty. Henry could not well have remained satisfied with this assurance. Next year, Kildare and his cousin Desmond encouraged Perkin Warbeck, and in 1492 the king made a complete change in the government of Ireland, appointing Walter Fitzsimmons, Archbishop of Dublin, as Lord Deputy in Kildare's place. Some Irish feuds broke out, and there was fighting in the streets of Dublin. But at last, in 1493, Kildare was induced by a promise of pardon to go over and seek the king's presence. He and some Irish lords who went with him were invited by the king to a feast, at which Simmel served them with wine, and witnessing the shame on each of their faces when they saw their cupbearer, Henry remarked sarcastically, My masters, you will crown apes some day. Kildare received his pardon on June 22nd, but was not restored to his old office. After some other changes, the king, September 11, 1494, appointed his second son, Henry, as Lord Lieutenant, a mere honorary title, or Sir Edward Poynings as his deputy. Poynings was a good soldier, but found desultory warfare with Irish chieftains unsatisfactory, and tried to secure their loyalty by money payments. He then opened a Drogheda on December 1st, 1494, the Parliament, which passed the celebrated acts called by his name. 
whereby for the next three centuries all legislation submitted to the Irish Parliament required first to be approved by the English Council. Other enactments in this Parliament were conceived in the same spirit as laws passed in England, to put down armed retinues and the war cries of hostile factions. But having established a new system of government, Poynings was recalled in January 1496, and August the 6th following, Kildare, who had curiously regained the king's confidence by his frankness, was reinstated as deputy. From that day he held the office till his death, and was faithful both to Henry and to his son. The king seems to have believed from the first that nothing but a little personal intercourse with him was required to make him a loyal subject, and he was right in the belief. Warbeck's imposture being now at an end, the king did not at first care to keep him in very close confinement. But on June 9, 1498, the year after his capture, he created some alarm by escaping at night from the king's court, where he had only been watched by keepers. He got no further, however, than Sheen, where he again took sanctuary and prevailed upon the prior to intercede for him. He was placed in the stocks for several hours, one day at Westminster and another day in Cheapside, after which he was shut up in the tower, where he remained the greater part of next year. But meanwhile the king had been disquieted by a new impostor, a young man named Ralph Wilford, who suddenly appeared in Kent, first telling people privately that he was the Earl of Warwick just escaped from the tower, while one Friar Patrick, for whom he was accompanied, confirmed the story and at last declared it from the pulpit. Both the young man and the friar were soon apprehended, and the former was hanged on Shrove Tuesday, February 12, 1499. A few weeks later it was observed that Henry seemed to have grown twenty years older, while spending much time in religious observances, while also accumulating money, of which he had an unequalled store. That he was brooding over danger to himself is hardly doubtful. Later in the year, Warbeck managed to corrupt some of his keepers, with whom he formed a conspiracy to kill Sir John Digby, the lieutenant of the tower, and liberate himself and the Earl of Warwick, who, having been a prisoner from boyhood and knowing nothing of the world, gave too easy an assent to the project. Warbeck was tried and hanged at Tyburn in November, with his old associate John of Water, Mayor of Cork. The Earl of Warwick was arranged at Westminster before the Earl of Oxford, as Constable of England, confessed the indictment in his simplicity, and was beheaded on Tower Hill. Warwick's confinement had been all along justified only by the danger of leaving him at liberty, but his execution was felt to be nothing less than a judicial murder. One thing, however, was made clear to Yorkist intriguers. Neither counterfeit Warwicks nor any other counterfeits would avail them now. If they took further action, it must be in their own names. End of section 46